Very uh, pleased that you have joined us. Those of you who are online, uh, there's, there's a few of us here, which is always better than preaching straight to a camera. But the downside, um, well, I guess there's some good news. The downside is when people are, excuse me, when people are wearing masks, I can't actually tell if they're uh, with me or if they've fallen asleep. So uh, the good news is Val is wearing a, a shield, so I can actually see her. So we'll know if, uh, if I get off track here real quick, I guess. So if you want to open to... To 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What, uh, what I did this week is when I sat down, um, and I've mentioned this before, when I sit down and, and study through a book, I kind of break it apart as I think I'm going to deal with things. And then inevitably, a few, uh, a few alterations are made. And in this, in this particular chapter, I was going to go through the whole thing uh, in one week, which is bold, I know, 23 verses, I usually don't get that far. But, uh, but I thought I could, and then and then I got to a couple of little issues where I realized it's not going to work. We're, we're going to need to take more time next week specifically on an issue right at the end here of chapter 3. And, and I didn't want to deal with it real quick and finish. I wanted to actually deal with it, address it, um, because I know there, there are many questions uh, about it. And there's some very interesting interpretations out there. And so I, I wanted to make sure I gave enough effort and, and made it. Uh, a focal point. So this morning might be a little bit shorter, I say that, but I always talk the same amount of time. But it might be shorter, we'll see. Uh, so chapter 3, in the beginning of it here, Paul is going to go back to dealing with an issue that he's already talked about, but in a different way. So as you may remember, or if you don't remember, let me just remind or uh, get you up to speed, I guess, is Paul's written this as a letter to the church in Corinth. Um, he planted the church, and, uh, and he, he had received word, whether, whether that means somebody came and told him orally or if somebody sent a letter. It, it's not 100% clear. But either way, he gets a report that things aren't going very well in Corinth. There's a lot of, there's a lot of issues, and he takes time to deal with each of these issues. And, and we're nearing the end of kind of the first issue, and this first issue is an issue of disunity. Um, what you find in the, in the first couple of chapters here is that people are kind of picking their favorite teacher. And they're saying, you know, Paul or Apollos or Peter or whoever, like, like I followed them. They told me the gospel. I became a Christian under them, and so I, I know more than you do. And, and, and the heart root of the issue is this arrogance where they were placing themselves higher than others because somebody else had been baptized by uh, somebody different than you or because somebody came to Christ through somebody different than you. And Paul kind of says, look, you're, you're dividing the church by doing this. And that's not right. That's not good. And he deals a lot with division. But last week, at, in the end of chapter 2 and into chapter 3, he switches focus from it's causing disunity to you're actually proving your own immaturity in this, and your own immaturity is hurting the church, and it needs to be dealt with. Now, this is kind of a difficult passage in the sense that it's a rebuke. It's a rebuke to the Corinthians first, so, so it's easy for us to maybe read this and think he's just talking about the Corinthians, uh, but we probably are going to see a lot of similarities uh, between our own hearts at times and what they're dealing with here. See, Paul planted this church. Paul loves these people, and, and Paul's concern is not just that they become saved, though that is a, certainly an important part of it, is that they mature, that they grow, that they 
reach out and become disciplers of others so that more and more people can enter into the kingdom of God. Because for Paul, it's not about one person. It's about the nations. He wants everyone to hear who this Jesus is. And he wants them to experience uh, this deep growth so that when they become saved, they go, man, I got to go tell others this. And the only way we can go and tell others this is if we actually know how to articulate that. And again, Paul's worked really hard at saying, look, it's not about my or your uh, articulate words and some great gospel presentation. It's about learning to trust Jesus more. It's about giving more of your heart to him more and more and, and allowing him, the Holy Spirit, to lead and guide and direct you. And he, in his power, will use you for great things. And so we're going to talk about all of this, but from maybe a slightly different angle than what we've dealt with up to this point. So let's read together from chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 9. Paul says this, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So you can see he kind of goes back to this Paul-Apollos kind of thing. Uh, but he deals with it in a different way. But before we get there, so the beginning here, verses 1 and 2. But I, brothers, now that maybe loses a little bit of its... Um, understanding in English, but this word brothers in Greek is, is a in term of endearment. So Paul is about to rebuke them for their immaturity and their lack of growth, but he also wants to do it in a sense where he's telling them, look, I'm not just coming at you holier than thou and you need to attain this. He loves them and he's trying to get them to see that. But I, I brothers, now notice the tense here. I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for you were not ready for it. So that's, that's not a rebuke yet, but he's talking past tense. I could not address you then that way because you were infants. I gave you milk, not food, for you were not ready for it. Th that's normal. That's all of us, is when we hear the message of Christ, and when we accept Christ, we become like a spiritual baby. We don't know all the things we ought to yet. We haven't learned. We haven't matured. We haven't grown. We know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's the most important thing, right? And that he rose again and that we can now have salvation. But again, Paul's not happy with that. He wants more. And so there's not a rebuke in that sense yet. And we shouldn't hear it that way. What we should hear is that Paul's saying, look, this is the way it was, and, and that's expected, and that's normal, but, and then the last little bit of verse 2, even now you are not yet ready. 
Now, again, I, I want to be clear here, right? So according to 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, it's God's desire that all of us be saved. So salvation is central. It is important. But God's plan of salvation, all worked out through the New Testament, is not just that. And, and it almost sounds funny, but it's not just eternity, though eternity is the biggest piece of that. It's also here and now. It's gathering together into a united corporate body of people who love each other, who care for each other, who will lift each other up, who will encourage each other, and sometimes, when needed, who will rebuke each other. That's what Paul's saying the church should look like and should be, but he says, but you're not. You're not, you're not even ready to hear that yet. Paul says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food. And, and again, you can't understand, nobody can understand the complex truths of Scripture until we understand easier things first. Um, there's a reason why I don't understand the math that Smonga does, because I never learned the stuff underneath it, and so I can't do this. It's just, it's normal. You wouldn't expect that you can do something that you've never seen or you've never understood. But then, when he says you are still not ready, the rebuke comes in, and, and there's a similar rebuke in the book of Hebrews, and maybe... As we read that, you kind of thought back of that. The writer of the Hebrews, or writer to the Hebrews, says this. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It's a very similar thing. And in fact, it's, it, this is one of the reasons why many people believe that Hebrews was written by Paul. Um, and, and I'm not trying to dismiss that. Uh, I just simply think that if we don't know, and it doesn't say, speculating isn't very helpful. And actually, as I read through this, and, and as I looked around other passages in Scripture, I realized this isn't really an argument for the similarity of Paul as to the similarity of church. This is not unique in that church, in the church to the Hebrews. In almost every letter, you have this same kind of problem. Is there's people in the church who are not growing up. They're staying as children. They're staying spiritually as babies. And, and Paul and James and Peter and, and others, right, they tell them, you need to grow up. You need to mature. And, and that's a rebuke that probably we need to hear sometimes, is, is how often as we talked about last week, how often do I go immediately to worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom? How often do I try and fix the problem before bowing and surrender and saying that I need help from God and I need God to show me and direct me? It's so often we show our own immaturity. But Paul says, look, you are still not ready for it. You are still of the flesh. Uh, the, the Greek translation there is, you are still fleshly. I don't really know exactly what that means, but this idea of you're, you're just, you're consumed with yourself, with what you can see, what you can quantify, but you need to look to the spiritual. He says, here's, the, here's what's happening, for there is still jealousy and strife among you. Well, jealousy is as old as Cain and Abel, all the way back to very near the beginning of Genesis. Well, and you you could probably argue a little bit that jealousy or pride uh, in the Garden of Eden. But jealousy is not something unique to the Corinthians either. That's something all of us face 
from time to time. And when we do fight with jealousy, we actually show our spiritual immaturity. And, and let me say it in this way. I'm not trying to come across saying that I don't do this. I struggle with this from time to time, just like everybody else. So this is not me saying, look, attain my level. This is saying, look, Paul is, is speaking to the Corinthians. Yes, but he's speaking to you and I as well. The simple truth is that the message of the gospel is only God's grace given to us. He has reached out and offered us salvation through Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. We don't deserve it in the least. We can't earn it. It's only through grace. And if we understand that that's the greatest gift that we could ever be given and we don't even deserve that gift, then we won't be people that are jealous of what other people have because we'll recognize we have the greatest thing that anyone could have. We have been given the greatest gift in the world and yet sometimes we're not satisfied and we look to someone else with what they've been given or, or something that they worked hard for or potentially sometimes when we work hard for something and we don't get it but somebody else does and we determine that they didn't work as hard as we did and then we get upset but a sign of spiritual maturity I think is when we see somebody receive something that we celebrate with them rather than want it for ourselves And I think in my own heart, how often have I looked at something that someone else got and immediately gone, oh man, I need that too. Or I wish I got that. Or they don't need it. Or they didn't work for it. All that does is expose the own immaturity in my own heart. And, and really what I'm saying to God is, Jesus is not enough. I need Jesus plus some of these other earthly blessings. And the truth of it is, I don't deserve any earthly blessings. And I don't deserve any of my spiritual blessings. And yet, I have so much. I have way more than I could ask for. In fact, the, if, if we, so if you're watching this and you live in Canada, then you're among the top 8% of wealth in the world. If you own more than one vehicle, you're in the top 3% of people in the world. And I don't say that to try and make us feel guilty I say that so that we can go, look, God is blessing and God has given us so much beyond what we could ever ask. And we need to look at it with that context in mind, that we are so blessed. So he says jealousy is a problem. Then he says strife is a problem. Well, that's not a word that we use very often, at least I don't think we do. Maybe some of you do and you have better vocabularies than I do. Uh, but the NIV uh, translates this a little bit more in today's language. It says uh, quarreling. Right, so there's, there's jealousy and quarreling among you. And again, the church, according to Paul, is meant to be a united group of people working for the same goal and the same mission and loving each other. So quarreling goes, by definition, exactly against that. Now again, we studied through a sermon series just a, a couple of months ago, I guess, on kind of some of the core points of doctrine, some of the very important things that, that there's no room to disagree or to agree to disagree on, because we need to hold those things high. But the truth is, there's a lot of stuff that we can agree to disagree on and be okay with. Or even more than that, let me say it this way, you can disagree with somebody, and maybe you're very concerned that they think a certain thing, and theologically you don't think that's correct. You can go to them, and you can love them, and share that with them. You don't have to quarrel with them. And yet, 
and I'll just speak for myself here because I don't want to point the finger at you. I, I like to be right. And I, I think many of us do, but for me, I'm just talking about me. I like to be right. And, and when I get into some kind of a conversation theologically with somebody, I like to prove why I'm right way before listening to what they say. And all that does is show my own immaturity. God doesn't need me to defend the gospel for him. He's done that. He wants me to to be a partner and a co-worker, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, with him, and he's called me into that. But that means that I should love those who disagree, love those who don't know Christ, and go and share with them. And I can do that in in a kind, loving way. We shouldn't be quarreling with one another, even when we disagree I forget the quote, and I looked for it really hard this week, uh, and I couldn't find it because when you, when you have misremembered something, um, at least the order of the quote, you just type it into Google, and goodness, you'd have to search through that for years. But, but I remember coming across something where somebody was having a conversation with this wise, older spiritual person. And at the end of that conversation, he had kind of been rebuked for his theology, this younger fellow. And he, and he wrote, when he went away, he said something to the effect of this. He said, I knew when we left that conversation just how much he disagreed with me, but I also knew just how much he cared for me. And that should be the way we leave those conversations. Yeah, they disagreed with me and they showed me something differently, but I also knew that they weren't trying to prove their point. They were trying to care for me and my soul. And that's the way that we should disagree. Again, we all have different opinions on all kinds of different things. Right? There's all kinds of jokes. If you have five different people in a room, you have six different opinions. Right? Like sometimes that's just the reality of it. And we need to not worry that we are right and everyone else is wrong. We need to go to Scripture and see what Scripture says. And if we're convinced that what Scripture says is consistent with what we think, then we just need to sit down with them and, and show someone these things. But we need to listen to them, listen to their uh, reasons why they believe what they do. And we need to love each other in that process. If you're living according to jealousy and strife, Paul says, you're behaving only in a human way. And, and his argument is kind of that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit has been given to you and you no longer should look at things in this worldly way. You should no longer act merely human. You should be led by the power of the Holy Spirit. So then he says this, and, and, and note this, this is kind of weird. Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paulus, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos and what is Paul? What would you expect it to say there? Who, right? Like who is Apollos and who is Paul? But he says what? What is Paul and what is Apollos? One commentator I read explained that using this terminology was Paul's way of showing how little Paul and Apollos mattered in this context. They shouldn't even be mentioned in it. If you Go to Psalm 8, and we don't have time this morning, but if you go to Psalm 8, uh, David writes this in one of the verses. He says, What is man that you are mindful of him? David was having this realization of just how big God is and how little and insignificant and small, in the grand context of everything, he was. Now, don't mishear me, and, and don't think that I'm saying that you don't have value. You have infinite value. Why do you have value? Well, because you're created in the image of God. How has that value been proven? Well, Jesus went willingly to the cross and died in your place for your sins and my sins that he never committed. So we have infinite value. God loves us desperately, 
but that doesn't make us any more important than the next person. In fact, what that should do is that should remind us that every person, no matter how we would define them, no matter how bad we might think they are, they have been created in the image of God. God's character has been pressed upon them, and he loves them desperately. So am I more important than them? Certainly not. And Paul's trying to get this across them. What what is Apollos? What is Paul? We're servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. Twice in that, he kind of says, this isn't about us. It's about what God's doing. It's, and we didn't save you, but it was God who saved you. In Luke chapter 23, the disciples are arguing a little bit. And, uh, and Jesus says, the one who wants to be greatest must be a servant of all. No one is too great to serve. And actually, I think there's great honor to be taken from being a servant. But a servant is simply that, a servant of one who is greater. D.A. Carson writes it and explains it this way. He says, they could not claim personal credit, that's Paul or Apollos, because the Lord had assigned each to each his task. The Lord assigned it, right? It's, it's not about me. And so how can I get a big head and how can I think I'm more valuable because I did this? Again, Paul's saying you misunderstand church. Now again, later on in 11, he's going to start talking about some of these things through 11, 12, 13, and he's talking about how the church needs to come together and use each of our gifts for the edification of one another because all of us have, have a place. And Paul says this in a unique way here. He turns it on to uh, an agricultural metaphor in verse 7. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Hmm. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So let me read to you something here. Commentator A. Johnson says this. There's three important things to note in this metaphor. Firstly, each worker is needed and is equal. Second, the servants, though necessary, are relatively unimportant. And third, while the servants' tasks are different and they share the same purpose, each will be rewarded according to his own labor. There's some profound truth in there. We are all equal, as I mentioned, because God has created us in his image. We're all necessary because God has called each of us. So he's called you and you and you guys sitting at home. Each of us, he's called all of us to a specific purpose. He's gifted us specifically in unique ways, not so that we have greater value than anybody else, but that's so we work together as one. So we are need, we're, we're, each worker is needed and each worker is equal. But the second part is where he says the servants, though necessary, are relatively unimportant. I've said this lots before, but the reality is, is God does not need me to accomplish his purpose. Now again, I'm not saying that God doesn't want to use us. I'm saying that God doesn't need to. In the Old Testament, he made a donkey speak because somebody wouldn't. Right? Like God can do what God wants to do in any way he wants to do it. And so what we should look at is the fact, and we were talking about this with Smanga the other night in our devotions, is we get to be on God's team. God has chosen us and said, I've gifted you this way. Will you go and do this for my glory and my honor? And we get to be part of what God is doing. 
He doesn't need me because I have some unique ability that nobody else around me has. Now, it might be true that you have a unique ability around you that nobody has, but don't for one second think that God won't give someone else that ability real quick. God assigns. God gives each of us a task, right? And there's a famous saying that God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies those he calls. That's the reality. God equips us for what he has called us to do. Sometimes he uses our natural abilities, and, and, and that's great, but sometimes he calls us to things that we never thought we would ever do or couldn't do. I'm not able to. Just, just look through Scripture and how many people argued with God and said, oh, I couldn't possibly. Like, that's for somebody else. That's not for me. And yet God chose these people because he says, I'm going to use you. And I'm going to use you so that you can see that it is me accomplishing this in you and not me. Sorry, and not you. Hopefully you know what I meant there. That was a confusing sentence. If we take credit for the things that God is doing in our lives, we actually belittle God. And this, the root of that would be pride, and that's, that's something that we all struggle with. This is probably the biggest single issue present in the Bible, is the pride of man. But if I work for God and for his glory, then God will receive what he is due. And that will, actually be, that will actually point people toward the greatness of Jesus. And ultimately, is that not what we're trying to do? Or are we trying to point people to the greatness of us? And say, look what God has done in me, rather than going, man, it's amazing what God has done through me, and I'm not worthy of it. But it's so amazing to see and and so wonderful that God's chosen to use me in this way. The focus always should be on Jesus. Now, let me just clarify something too. He says, Paul says that the one who plants and the one who waters are nothing, but he also says that they are one, right? So Paul's not minimizing the tasks of he or Apollos or anyone else. Those are noble tasks, and they're good things that we need to do, but the results do not lie with us. They lie with God. And again, I've, I say this often, but I, I think I, I say it often because I think it needs to be said often. We need to be reminded of that. I need to be reminded. I can have the best presentation possible for someone to accept Christ and watch them not accept Christ and have them turn around and walk away. Where I thought it was foolproof and there's no logical argument you could have against me. And on the flip side of that, we could really stumble with our words and not really sure how to say what we say and, and what we feel. And we can feel like great big failures and then we can find out later on that that person accepted the Lord because of that conversation. Because the results don't lie with us. And I'm actually terribly encouraged by that because what that means is that as long as I am faithful to do what God has called me to do, I don't have to carry the successes and the failures. I don't have to have those burdens weighing me down. And I think that is very, very encouraging. The results lie with God, not with us. A.W. Tozer has written a lot about this very theme, about the bigness of God, the smallness of us, and, and yet how he uses us. And he said it this way once. The reason why many people are still troubled, still seeking, still making little forward progress, is because they haven't yet come to the end of themselves. We're still trying to give orders and interfering with God's work within us. Isn't that an interesting statement? We're still trying to give orders, interfering with God's work in us. I've used the analogy before as like the, the bumper sticker, right? Jesus is my co-pilot. 
and how that's completely unbiblical. It's like Jesus should be the pilot, and we should be the co-pilot. <laughs> like, let, let God lead. Let God direct. Then we read uh, about this rewards. And, and this is, it talks about this in the next few verses a little bit. And this is where I want to spend a lot of time next week because I want to clarify some of these things. In verse 8, he says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So the, the most important thing that we need to note here is Paul's not talking about salvation here. He's not saying that you will receive salvation because you worked hard. He's saying there will be rewards for those who are faithful. And immediately, that might be difficult for us to swallow. But he can't be talking about salvation because the rest of Paul's writings, he spends great deals of time, a lot of length and and a lot of deep theology on saying, it is by grace that you have been saved, not of your own doing. So here we're talking about the rewards that God is going to give us for a faithful life. Uh, Thielman writes it this way, God's blessing and rewards in the lives of Christians vary according to their faithfulness to the, task that, to the tasks he entrusts to them. There's actually quite a few verses, and again, we're going to talk about this next week, but there's quite a few verses that talk about the rewards that we will be given in heaven and how they will vary dependent on how faithful we are to the things that God calls us. And you might not like that, right away. And that might be something where you're like, well, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. Why will someone get more than I do? But the reality is this shouldn't be compared or this shouldn't be understood in a context of comparison. If we believe that God is just, then what God does is fair. Or maybe let's say it this way, what God does is just. Sometimes we think of fair in the context of what someone gets in that context is the same thing that I should get in my context, but those contexts are very different. That doesn't mean that's fair. It doesn't mean that that's just. But we know that God is just. What I've found is that those, those very mature believers that we know, those that, that we just kind of spend time with and we're like, we can just, man, I, I wish like I had their depth or I wish I could pray the way that they pray because they seem so close to God. Those kind of people in our life, what I found is they all don't care about the rewards. That's not their focus anymore. They've matured to the place where they're not worried about comparing to what that person gets or what that person gets. Because what they get, they're going to give to God anyway. And again, we'll talk more about that in a while. But what I've also found is the opposite of that to be true is that those who are very immature in their faith can't handle the fact that maybe someone that they know will be given a greater reward from God. Well, again, that just shows that that jealousy is still within us. Again, when we get to heaven, we will celebrate with everyone because our human nature will be gone. All that comparing, all all the things where they're only human, that'll be gone and we will just be a new creation only the Holy Spirit alive in us will be the one that how we process things. And this can be difficult. Like we, we have a hard time with comparison. At least I think many of us do. But what encourages me, and I don't know if this is a good thing, uh, but in Matthew 18, the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest, and one of them wants to sit on the right hand of Jesus because he's more important than the others. And Jesus rebukes them for their 
motivation because it's not right. They were still doing things for the reward, but we do things because we love God. We do the tasks he's assigned to us, not for the rewards that we'll get, but because the glory that God will get through our service. And what is encouraging to me in, in that Matthew 18 verse is the reality that there's these people, these disciples, who have been following Jesus, and yet they still didn't get it, and their motivation wasn't right. That encourages me because other people struggle in the same ways that I struggle. There's nothing worse than when we struggle alone and we think nobody understands what I'm going through. But when we understand that others are on the same uh, kind of the same ride with us, the same journey, and they struggle in the same ways, uh, that encourages me. Now, it shouldn't excuse it, right? Like, it shouldn't make it a way that I can go, well, they struggle too, so I don't have to deal with this. That's, that's mis- misreading that. What it should do is for us to realize that there is a human nature that is at work within us still until the day that we die. We have been given the Holy Spirit, but these two natures now fight. And I either submit and allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct me, but sometimes... Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I don't listen. Sometimes I say things that I regret. Sometimes I hurt people that I care about with my words and my actions because I was focused only on me. And I think the journey of the Christian life is this dependence on the Holy Spirit and where we learn and grow and mature so that we say those hurtful things and do those hurtful things a little bit less as we get older because we learn to Submit to the Holy Spirit more and more. The last verse here says, we are God's fellow workers. Notice the inclusive we. Paul is telling them that each of us are meant to work together collectively for the glory of God. Uh, D.A. Carson again writes it this way. They are God's fellow workers, just just as the Corinthians are God's field and God's building. In the, same way the current, oh, sorry, in the same way that Corinth's magnificent buildings had the benefactor's name inscribed on them, the Corinthians are being God's edifice. There is no such thing as my converts, and neither do Christians belong to any particular Christian teacher or evangelist. That's what Paul's trying to get at. They all belong to God. We all belong to God, and we all work together for the same purpose. And so elevating somebody who is a servant of Jesus above somebody else doesn't even make sense according to the gospel. All of us are loved dearly by a God who was willing to go to the cross, who was willing to pay the penalty for our sins. And it it helps me. It helps me when I recognize that. Because again, we can, we can judge so quickly. We can look at somebody who's behaved a certain way, who's done a certain thing, or who looks a certain way, and we can go, man, like they, they don't understand. They don't, they don't know. This is so wrong, or how could they possibly, or whatever it might be. And again, we need to remind ourselves that we too, according to Ephesians, were dead in our sins. But we've been made alive in Christ through him. Not because of what we've done, because of what he's done. And so Paul has argued, and he's going to continue a little bit of this, for people to understand that while they're valued inherently, they're not more important. They're not more important than anybody else. They don't have some kind of higher standing with God or some kind of spiritual 
greatness, but that each, and in fact, his argument is, the more you think about yourself, the more immature you show yourself to be. We need to allow God to work. Let the Holy Spirit lead and guide us so that we can work collectively as one church for the, for the glorification of Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll again, we'll talk about these rewards and, and we'll deal with a few of the verses that come because they can be a little bit tricky to understand and, and there have been some very interesting interpretations over time. But let me just kind of end with this. Is I think if every day we reminded ourselves of John 3.16, we'd do ourselves a favor. It doesn't say, for God so loved Greg. Right? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. May we remember that each one of us are created in the image of God and that God loves us desperately and God wants to be in relationship with each one of us. Not just for us to be saved, but so that he might partner with us and so that we might go out and do the things that he has called of us in his power, not our own. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text this morning and it can be a difficult one. I know that for me anyway, that sometimes sometimes it can be far too easy to focus on me, what I want, what I think I deserve, my desires. And all I do when I do that, all I'm doing is showing how immature I am in the faith. May each of us look to see how we might spread the name of Jesus, that we would lift him up, that everything that we do would not point to us and, and how amazing we are, but rather to Jesus Christ and how amazing he is. So that others would see not us, but they would see Jesus. May we use the gifts and the talents that you have given each of us for not our own selves, not our own desires, but may we work collectively together as one church so that you are lifted high and so that our community sees you. God, I'm convinced that people don't come to faith because they see how amazing I am. They come to faith because they see how amazing you are. And may we internalize that. May we recognize that we have no more value than any other person. We are all created in the image of God and that you love each one of us desperately. Help us to see our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and our families. Help us to see all of them in that light. And may we love them the way that you love us. God, we're so thankful for the love and the grace that you have for us. May we grow up. May we become mature. May we not stay as little infants in the faith, but may we become what you want us to be. God, we love you. We thank you for all that you're doing in our lives. Be with us this week. And God, if there's anybody that is listening to this right now that needs something, that they're whether that's physical need or an emotional need or a spiritual need or whatever it might be. May you give them the courage to reach out and ask for the help that they need. God, each one of us at various times knows that we have needed help, and so may we not be too proud to ask. And if somebody asks us, may we be humble enough to realize 
that we are no better, that we need just as much from you. God, we love you. Be with us today. Amen. Just want to give you one last uh, thing. Is I did write you an email uh, on Friday and, and said a little video update. We are trying to make sure that any of you uh, who are not currently involved in a Bible study, um, we're trying to make space for that. So little small groups of three, four, five, six people, kind of a, an idea. Any time of the day. And so I want you to just, if, if you aren't involved in a Bible study, I want you to consider being part of one and that you would just simply write an email to us and say, you know what, Thursday at 3 o'clock, that's the only time that works for me. We'll find a few other people that, that can meet with you at that time. And We just want everyone to feel uh, connected and feel a part uh, of, this, of our church and what we're all doing uh, together. So have a wonderful week, and we look forward to seeing you again.